In the summer of 1994, our, our, in our annual Jim Hare family vacation, all 32 of us, my kids, my brothers and sisters and their kids, my nieces and nephews, piled into three vans and headed off to AJ's Adventureland, where we drove go-karts, we played mini-golf, some of the kids played video games. Um, after several hours of fun, we all loaded up in the vans and headed back to the McVoy Cottage where we were staying. About 30 minutes later, my nephew Jay wondered where our then nine-year-old son, Philip, was. Well, I, I mentioned that I hadn't seen him, but, you know, the house is large, and you can go down to the beach by the, uh, yourself, and so it didn't occur to me that it was a problem. But Philip was nowhere to be found, and so now I began to get just a little nervous. And as I headed through the front door to check outside and even go down to the beach one more time, a local police car pulled into the driveway. An officer stepped out and asked if the asked me if the parents of Philip Hare were there. And I said, "Yes, that would be me." Uh, and of course, by now I'm I'm in a full fledged panic. Well, the owners of AJ's Adventureland had called the police because it seems that when Philip had emerged from Playing uh, in the uh, games in the video arcade, he was glued to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I believe. He looked into the parking lot to discover that the three vans with toppers were gone. His parents had left him. He was frightened and immediately began crying. Philip later responded that when he didn't see the vans in the parking lot, and I quote, I remember one of the first thoughts to cross my mind was that I would be stuck in Pentwater for the rest of my life. <laughs> I had no clue until this week that that's what he as a nine-year-old was thinking. So, son, as you're listening to the podcast today, I apologize. Please forgive me. 20 years later. The manager had given Philip a bag of popcorn and a slushie as he was trying to describe the cabin where our family stayed, the manager called the police, who knew quickly of the renowned McVoy Cottage there in Pentwater. So we drove down to AJ's Adventureland. We had a tearful reunion, and we were glad, after nearly several hours of fear and uncertainty, uh, that we were able to dispel Philip's fears while having been abandoned. Well, this morning we are continuing a sermon series titled, Our God's Too Small. You know, often we think of our God as too weak or too distant or too uninterested or perhaps too unable to really do anything. And one of the main things the church family needs to be reminded of when we gather together at the first day of every week is that our God is really big. And we need to, to know what he's promised us as his children. And in these six weeks, rooted in the, the stories of the lives of some of the saints of the Old Testament, uh, we're going to be encouraged to see and experience God in bigger ways. Last week in the story of Jacob, we saw that our God is always good. And this morning in the story of Joseph, we'll rediscover that unlike we did with our son, Philip, God will never abandon us as his children. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful that you are always present. Thank you for this brand new day, for life and light, soundness of mind and health that enables us to be here, 
to celebrate our life in you and our desire to love and serve you. We welcome you among us. Holy Spirit, uh, you are welcome here. You are welcome in Vineyard Kids where they are learning and growing in their destinies and you are being shaped and formed. We welcome you to bring your kingdom among us in the ways you know we need whether that's to be inspired or encouraged or equipped or convicted. Lord, whatever it is that you know we need, we welcome you in your name. Amen. So today, when we log into MSNBC or we watch the TV news or you actually read the Journal Star, for those of you younger, that's a newspaper. It's shaped like this, and it has news in it. Um, and we hear about, you know, yet another suicide bombing or this week, the 93 people that were killed uh, in the Philippine earthquake or reports of the persecution of our brothers and sisters in Pakistan where their churches are being bombed and burned. We, we may wonder, well, where is God in all of this? And nearly every week when I interact with people, either in my office or on the telephone or over lunch or coffee, I hear folks genuinely struggling to know where God is in all of their trouble. People get sick. Our kids aren't walking with Jesus. We lose our job. We have financial difficulty. We wrestle with any other number of challenging issues. And consequently, devoted followers of Jesus may wonder and feel like God has left them or forsaken them. And because our circumstances often don't change quickly, nor do they yield immediately to our sincere efforts when we pray, we are tempted to quit, to, to turn away from God and the church, and we kind of shrug our shoulders and think, well, what's the use anyway? Maybe you felt like this on, on occasion. I'm tempted in these ways. I certainly understand if you are as well. I honestly think, though, that the problem for numbers of us is that we see God as too small and too absent. We believe that the adversity or the hardships or the difficult circumstances of our lives are proof. That's the evidence that God's not with us. And so this morning we're going to look at the Old Testament uh, in the life of Joseph and going to rediscover the powerful truth that actually God is always present with his children in the pit, in the prison, and even in the palace. The story of Joseph is recorded in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, chapters 37 to 50. Interestingly, not once in all of the Bible does God speak a negative word about Joseph. And although it's not explicit in any one text, I believe in part it's because God looks with a very deep pleasure and great joy on his children who respond very positively through the testing of their character, as they believe that God is really big and always present. Now, there are four major crises of difficult circumstances in Joseph's life. We'll take a look at them this morning. The first is family feud. Joseph was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons, born to two wives, Rachel and Leah, and two concubines, Billa, who was Rachel's servant, and Zilpah, who was Leah's servant. Twelve kids by four women. Joseph was born in Padan Aram, 
the homeland of Rachel, his mother, while his father Jacob was still working for his uh, father, uh, father-in-law Laban. Joseph was Jacob's favorite child, perhaps because he was born as the son of his old age, as well as Rachel, Rachel's firstborn, and Rachel was uh, Jacob's favorite of the four. Joseph was probably strong and prudent, like his great-grandfather Abraham, gentle and patient, like his father Isaac, grandfather Isaac, affectionate, like his father Jacob, perhaps handsome and well-built, like his mother Rachel. The Bible says she was lovely in form and beautiful. So he had good genes, came from good stock. Now, this scenario created, though, the, the first crisis of difficult circumstances for Joseph. Parental favoritism in an incredibly complicated blended family. You think you've got trouble. Some blended families, uh, understandably, have a struggle with his kids, her kids, and our kids. Um, and there are almost always charges of either favoritism or leniency leveled against one side or the other, or one group of children. And, of course, the older siblings always think that the younger younger kids get off easy, Right? Those of you who are the young ones, you, you skated. I, and I know now in our family, though I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely certain it wasn't true, the older three kids, Emily, Jenna, and Philip, thought that Casey, the youngest, just skated under the radar all the time. But you can, you can imagine the struggle with four mothers and, and 12 half-brothers. It would have been complicated. And then through no fault of his own, Joseph was the favorite son of them all. And this this favoritism aroused the jealousy of his older ten brothers. Genesis 37.4 tells us his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word about him. Well, there probably wasn't any one single thing that Joseph did to turn his ten older brothers against him. Very often, though, isn't it? In marriages and families, it's seldom just one thing. It can be, but seldom. Rather, it's the accumulation of small actions, the greatness of which lies in their collective combination. And then there is the proverbial straw that breaks the camel's back. Some small gesture or a comment or a question or an action that opens up just a floodgate of responses. It can be something as simple as pass the ketchup and then, you know, all hell breaks loose. I just asked you to pass the ketchup. In this case, it's likely Joseph's richly ornamented robe. All the other kids had to wear hand-me-downs and garage sale clothes, but Joseph got to wear the special coat, the limited edition tunic that that reached all the way down to the the feet and the hands. It was the kind of robe worn oil only by royalty and probably spoke to the brothers that Jacob the father intended to bestow the birthright and blessing on Joseph as the youngest. Their ill will towards Joseph was fueled by two dreams that he'd had and unwisely shared with his family, dreams that foreshadowed a time when his father and mother and brothers would all bow down before him. 
Genesis 37, 8 tells us, and they all, they hated him all the more because his dreams and the way that he talked about them. And you might just dial back into the story and imagine for a moment how, how much Joseph was likely tormented by his brothers, how much he would have suffered. You know, I, it certainly wasn't egregious, but I remember how I constantly picked on my two younger brothers growing up. They were five and eight years younger than I was, and it was just all in innocent fun. At least I thought it was. I'm sure if you interviewed Tim and Nate, they might have a different story. But in the midst of this family dysfunction, parental favoritism, and jealousy and hatred by the siblings over which Joseph had no control, but by which he suffered incredibly, God was with him. He placed him in this family constellation for his bigger purposes. My encouragement to all of us is don't go trying to figure out why God has placed you in the family situation he did. He's got a bigger purpose, and he's present with you. The second crisis of difficult circumstances is slavery. So when Joseph was 17 years old, his father Jacob sent him to Shechem, where his Brothers were tending sheep to find out how they were doing. Well, upon reaching Shechem, he found out that they'd actually gone to Dothan, and so he followed them there. And when his brothers saw him approaching, they conspired to kill him. Here's how the text reads. If you have a Bible or a Bible app in Genesis 37, you could follow along. Verse 19. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him, and we'll throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father, a wild animal has eaten him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Now, Reuben, the oldest and wisest, hoped to actually spare Joseph, and so he prevailed upon his brothers not to take Joseph's life, but to cast him into an empty cistern. After having torn off his richly ornamented robe, the coat of many colors, They actually did. They threw him in. But then in Reuben's absence, a caravan of Ishmaelite traders was traveling on the great highway that went down into Egypt. It was a a renowned trade route. And not wanting to be responsible for his brother's death, Judah, the older brother, suggested that they actually sell him, which they did for 20 pieces of silver. And they finished their scheme by killing a young goat dipping Joseph's coat in the blood, taking the smeared garment to Jacob, who then concluded that indeed his son had been torn to pieces by a a wild animal. Well, in the meantime, the slave traders took uh, Joseph down into Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, who is the, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Pharaoh is the king of Egypt, the most powerful nation in all the world. And so this chapter of Joseph's life concludes with him now as a 17-year-old teenager being sold into slavery into a foreign country. I'm quite sure that the average 21st century middle-class, middle-American reader uh, cannot quite imagine the emotional and personal trauma of this kind of event. Frankly, few of us have any real connection to ancestors who were touched by slavery in, in our history's country, uh, country's history. So we can't really relate 
to in many ways to the trauma. But the truth is, Joseph's life at this point is over. It's done. There, there, there is no like hopeful future. Uh, he didn't know the end of Genesis 50 like we know. He, he didn't have the providential foresight to, to know how it was all going to end. He just had a couple of dreams that he thought God had given him. But at this point, he's experienced the ripping away of every aspect of his life that had provided identity and significance and security, all of his Jewish uh, heritage and culture, his family, his relationships, the, the geographic sphere of his influence. It was all gone and no hope for the future. Total uncertainty and fear. In the midst of this most devastating trauma, Joseph had no control, but God was still with him. Now, to be sure, I don't think Joseph took it all lying down. You know, in fact, later in the story, we we will learn that the brothers acknowledged as they were throwing him into the dry well, quote, we saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. You see, God made us emotional people with survival instincts. And so when you belly up, that's that's a God-given uh, uh, emotional response to challenging circumstances. I don't think Joseph was imagining or thinking, oh, praise God, I'm being thrown into this cistern to die. You know, or, oh, thank you, Jehovah, that I'm being sold as a slave into Ishmaelite traders. I doubt it. He was fighting for his life. I, I, I imagine he was thinking, like, I am afraid. I, I'm panicked. Now what, God? I'm going to be sold as a slave into a foreign land. Who knows what awaits me? God, I thought you gave me those dreams, but maybe they weren't from you after all, but I I thought they were. I don't see any hope for fulfillment. And yet, nevertheless, as we see it in the story unfolds, he knew that God was really big and that God was always present right there with him. The third crisis of difficult circumstances when when he went to prison. So now he's a slave in Potiphar's house. And his ability as a slave was soon noticed. If you look in uh, Genesis 39, verse 4, we read this about his experience there. Verses 2 to 4. The Lord was with Joseph, and so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. This pleased Potiphar. So soon he made Joseph his personal attendant, and he put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. I want you to look closely again at the detail that the Holy Spirit recorded in that text. Did you catch it? The Lord was with Joseph. Now, because he was tall and handsome and well-built, Potiphar's wife began putting the make on Joseph. But Joseph's integrity and devotion to God prevailed and enabled him to resist the temptation to have an affair with perhaps the most beautiful woman in the world. 
She was hot. Okay? And Joseph said, no. Not one to be rebuffed, she falsely accused Joseph of rape, attempted rape, defamed his character, stripped him of his title, privilege and position, had him thrown in jail. So here he is imprisoned for the next 10 years. That is a long time. One thing to be guilty is charged and thrown into jail. Uh, It's a travesty of justice to be falsely incarcerated with no hope of ever being released. You might imagine that Joseph wondered, what in the world is going on now, Lord? So in the midst, though, of this false accusation, despair, imprisonment through injustice, over which Joseph had no control, God was still with him, and we continue reading in Genesis 39, now verses 21 to 23, commentary the Holy Spirit offers us. But the Lord was with Joseph in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. And over everything that had happened in the prison, the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. So once again, the the Holy Spirit wants us to notice that the Lord was with Joseph in this crisis of difficult circumstances. And, in fact, he caused everything that he did to succeed and prosper under the most difficult and discouraging of circumstances over which Joseph had no control. God was still with him, causing him to be blessed. And then the fourth crisis of difficult circumstances is crushed hopes. So in the prison, the chief baker and the chief butler, who had been imprisoned with Joseph, each had dreams. Joseph recognized that they had prophetic significance. And God gave Joseph their interpretation on one condition, that the butler would remember his unjust imprisonment and reflect that to Pharaoh. Well, his interpretations for both the butler and the baker of their dreams were actually correct. The butler was restored to his position, and the baker was killed. But unfortunately, the butler promptly forgot about Joseph. Never gave him another thought. And maybe you could imagine, you know, you you finally get your hopes up. There's, There's just a little glimmer of possibility a little light at the end of the tunnel. There's a, a possible that things are going to are gonna turn, that your difficult circumstances, as challenging as they are, are going to maybe finally diminish, and then, boom, you're forgotten. The light goes out, the hope fades, the person forgets, the circumstances persist. And then day by day, your, your hope shrinks, and diminishes, and eventually they just crumble in a heap on the floor. They're, they're gone. No doubt Joseph, as each day passed, sank back into thinking, well, I guess this is my life. You know, I, 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 nothing's likely to change. 
I've now been forgotten by the butler, but not forgotten by God. God was with him. Interestingly, the story concludes with displays of God's lavish favor on Joseph, despite the circumstances. So another now two years goes by when Pharaoh had two prophetic dreams, which no one could interpret. And at that moment, ah, the butler remembers. Ah, yeah, there was this Hebrew guy in the prison who correctly interpreted mine and the baker's dreams. And so Pharaoh called for Joseph, uh, showered and shaved, and there he is in front of the most powerful man in the world. And Joseph interpreted his dreams, indicating seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of unprecedented famine. And that event catalyzed Joseph being literally promoted, catapulted, as it were, into the position of prime minister, the second in command of Egypt, the most powerful nation in all the world. From the prison to the palace in an hour. God's promotion. Pharaoh gave Joseph his daughter to marry, by whom he'd had two sons. Uh, The plentiful years and the famine years came just as Joseph predicted. Egypt was secure because they'd managed to store food under Joseph's direction. And then, as God would plan, Joseph's brothers came back to Egypt to buy grain. There was no uh, food in Canaan. They did not recognize Joseph. Think about it. Thirteen years has now gone by. And you know how it is when you see somebody you haven't seen for a long time. You think, are you really? And no doubt he had now been fully integrated into Egyptian culture. And so the, the gap between the Hebrews and the Egyptians was great. They, they, they didn't recognize Joseph. He recognized them at once. They bowed before him and he witnessed with his own eyes the fulfillment of the dreams that he'd had as a troubled youth in family feud. After testing their character in a variety of ways, on their second visit in what I consider the, one of the Bible's most tender, heartwarming and poignant reunion scenes, Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He forgave the wrongs that they had done and persuaded them and their father to come now and live in Egypt. If you have your Bible, you'll, you'll want to read with me in Genesis 45, this powerful restoration scene. Joseph 45. Uh, Genesis 45. <laughs> Joseph was actually about 30 at this time, not 45. I'm actually just, that was all planned to see if you're paying attention, you know. <laughs> it's strategic. I can tell that uh, a few of you don't believe that. Um, Genesis 45, beginning of verse 1. Joseph could stand it no longer. There were many people in the room, and he said to his attendants, Out, all of you! So he was alone with his brothers when he told them who he was. And then he broke down and wept. He wept so loudly the Egyptians could hear him, and word of it quickly carried to Pharaoh's palace. I am Joseph, he said to his brothers. Is my father still alive? 
But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer. And he said again, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years, and there will be neither plowing nor harvest. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. The conclusion of the story in Genesis 49, as as Joseph is recounting this once again to his brothers, In chapter 50, verse 19, Joseph said, Don't be afraid of me. You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. Don't be afraid. Wow, that is powerful. So, where was God when Joseph was growing up in a dysfunctional family and all the trauma that went with it, right there with him. Where was God when Joseph was being sold into slavery and losing his life at the hands of his angry, jealous brothers? Right there with him. Where was God when he was, when Joseph was unjustly imprisoned because of false accusation and character assassination and injustice of, of that kind? Right there with him. Where was God when Joseph was suffering a broken heart and the unfulfilled hopes when the butler forgot him and he languished in prison right there with him? God's promise to you as his daughter, as his son, is that he will never leave you or forsake you. He is always right there with you. He is present in your circumstances. The Gospel of Matthew, we read this promise uttered by Jesus, the last words that he spoke before he ascended to the Father. He came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and Be sure of this. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The writer to the book of Hebrews, quoting God's promise to the Israelites from the book of Deuteronomy in the 31st chapter, the writer says, For God said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. David, the king, the psalmist, the one of the, the, the quintessential characters of the Old Testament wrote in perhaps the most famous of his songs, Psalm 23, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I'll not be afraid, for you are close beside me. We cannot be dissuaded by the difficult circumstances in our lives. It is not evidence or proof that God has abandoned us. You see, friends, God's not merely there because we feel Him. 
or we see some kind of outward evidence. No, being a follower of Jesus is no ironclad guarantee that you won't have trouble. In fact, the Bible guarantees that in this world we will have trouble. It's not a question of doing life with or without problems. The only question is whether we're going to do life with or without Jesus. You're going to have problems. And so it's a matter of, are you going to have the problems with or without Jesus? And Jesus promises us as his children that in the middle of it all, he is with us and he will never leave us and never forsake us. I don't know about you. There's just something incredibly comforting and reassuring about that promise. And we need to be reminded of it regularly. Jesus is present with us as we await the day of his return. You see, friends, there is coming, the Bible tells us, uh, a, a day when this present evil age will conclude and all pain and suffering, and evil, and challenging, and difficult circumstances will be done away as Jesus returns to the earth. He ushers in the fullness, or the completion, or we might say the consummation of his kingdom. But now we're awaiting that day, and he promises us through his very personal and powerful presence in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gift that he gives to every man and woman and child that that believes in him, He lives within us. He's our comfort. He's our guide. He's our shepherd. And lest we be tempted by the adversity and hardships and and difficult circumstances and, and conclude that God is too small or that he's not with us, we need to be reminded that actually God is really big and he is right here, always present, present in your dysfunctional, broken family trauma present in your financial rubble, present in the grief of your loss, present in your suffering of some misfortune or turn of events that life didn't turn out the way you would imagine, present in your difficult choices, present in your wrong decisions, present in your physical illness or your current physical disability or limitation, present present in your negative circumstances or the hardships that press against you and challenge your faith, present in your apparently yet unanswered prayers, present when all your hopes and dreams have crumbled in a heap on the floor of the prison in which you are now living. God is big. God is present. That's the message of the sweeping story of the Bible. Let's embrace the powerful truth from the life of Joseph that God's present. Lord, thank you for this encouraging reminder that you are really big and you are really right here. I pray, God, that for every person today that's suffering adversity or hardship or difficult circumstances, that you could put power on this truth from your word and enlarge our hearts to believe that you're big and right here. And Lord, for those of us that are celebrating your lavish displays of kindness as Joseph experienced, we want to say thank you, and we praise you for that as well. And everything in between, thank you, Lord. And now as we, as we, Lord, worship you by giving of our gifts to you, small tokens that say everything comes from you and is due back to you, 
And so we give you a portion of that which you've blessed us with as a way of saying proactively, willfully, we love you and we thank you. And then we lift our hearts and hands in song to say the same thing in a different way. Come now, Holy Spirit. In your name, Lord. Amen.